Welcome to the BBC Radio Theatre for this special London Jazz Festival edition of Discovering Music. 2009 is the Benny Goodman centenary, so on today's programme we'll be exploring his unique jazz sound, along with two classical works with which he's inextricably linked, clarinet concertos by Aaron Copeland and Malcolm Arnold. Well, joining me on stage here at Broadcasting House is the Trinity College of Music Chamber Orchestra, conductor Andrew Gourley and clarinetist Julian Bliss. We'll be hearing Julian play Malcolm Arnold's Concerto Number no. 2 for clarinet later in the programme, and we'll also hear Benny Goodman himself playing the Copeland in his classic 1963 recording. At first, though, let's pick out some musical examples from that piece, and they'll be played for us by a student from Trinity College of Music, Daniel Broncano Aguilera. In 1947, when Benny Goodman commissioned him to write the piece, Aaron Copeland was already an established composer. He had three symphonies under his belt, as well as the ballet scores Rodeo and Appalachian Spring. He'd also written film music, notably for Thornton Wilder's Our Town, and he had a particular knack for evoking images of the rural American landscape. When Goodman paid him $2,000 in 1947, a lot of money, to write the clarinet concerto, in fact, Goodman described it as real money, Copeland was living and working in Rio de Janeiro, and there are some definite Brazilian influences in the music, as we might hear later on. It begins with a theme that Copeland first experimented with in the score for a wartime information film called The Cummington Story. This was intended to show how European refugees from World War II would be made welcome in small-town America. So what we get is one of Copeland's strong, characteristic New England landscapes depicted in the music, but we also get a sense of the background that he and Benny Goodman shared. They were both born into immigrant Jewish families, and Copeland used the clarinet theme over the top of the orchestra to hint at that European patrimony, the melancholy loneliness of the refugee. So, over to the Trinity College Chamber Orchestra and soloist Daniel Broncano Aguilera.
This first section of the concerto builds on that idea, a pared-down, spacious orchestral accompaniment with the clarinet overlaid on top. But there are some interesting questions here about exactly how Copeland wanted it to sound. On his record, what Goodman produced was a clear, vibratoless tone, and that's quite a contrast to the jazz records from the 30s that made his name. Goodman had been a child prodigy. He'd learnt his clarinet in a boys' band, and then he took some lessons from Franz Schoep, the clarinetist with the Chicago Symphony. By the time he was 16, he'd made his first professional recordings of jazz. There were two particularly brilliant things about Goodman's playing, and both of them were to be reflected in Copeland's concerto. One of them was his dazzling dexterity and articulation. We'll come to that later. But the other was his warm, full-toned ballad playing. Here's an example of that from his trio recording of the old Rogers and Hart song, Where or When. a singing vocal quality about that recording by Benny Goodman that's quite different from the sound of most of his classical work. In a recent edition of Jazz Library on Radio 3, I was talking to Sir John Dankworth about this very aspect of Benny's playing. John knew Benny quite well because he toured with him in Britain just after the war, and John's also played this concerto many times. In his view, Copeland was after something rather like the sound we've just heard in his vision for the first section of the piece. John told me he thought that what composers expected of Goodman was what he already did, not what he thought he ought to sound like. So here's, just by way of contrast, an example of the way that Goodman used his big band, rather like the accompanists here on stage for a concerto. It's the opening of a ballad called Smoke Dreams.
Well, it's poor old Helen Ward who got faded out there. But you can hear again that warm, luxurious ballad tone that composers and audiences so admired in Benny Goodman's own playing. Well, by the end of the 30s, Benny was probably the most famous clarinetist in the world. But he became increasingly anxious about what he saw as the limitations of his technique. When he started, he used to play with his teeth resting directly on top of the mouthpiece, getting a strong, forceful sound in common with most jazz clarinetists of that period. He also used a number of false fingerings that were very convenient for jazz, but which made his pitching slightly inaccurate. So he decided to completely relearn his technique. And around the time that Copeland was writing this concerto for him, Benny adopted a new embouchure that involved putting his upper lip between his teeth and the mouthpiece, and he had some surgery on his hands because he'd got calluses where he'd been doing these unorthodox fingering, and he wanted to change that. Well, now, Julian Bliss, who we'll hear later on, is with me. Julian, you've played this concerto a lot of times. Can you explain something of the difference between the way Benny used to play and what he was aiming at by 1949? For example, let's start with the embouchure. The choice of either a single or double embouchure, double is when you put your lip in between the teeth and the mouthpiece, it's really down to personal preference. The majority of players, including myself, uh, use a single embouchure, uh, as it's generally seemed to be more comfortable. Some people that use the double embouchure say it creates a smoother tone, which is maybe what Benny Goodman was going for at that time. Well, now let's also think about the question of vibrato, because when we were listening to those jazz recordings, there's a mile-wide vibrato on some of those things, but when we hear him in his classical recordings, he'd really cut that down to almost a pure sound. Could you demonstrate on the clarinet a bit of the, the difference between those two sounds? So, just to play the beginning of the Copeland, with no vibrato, as you heard earlier... And now I'm going to play it with, with just a, a little hint of vibrato, which is what the majority of modern-day players would use when used tastefully. Now, as a complete contrast, if I play the beginning of that as Benny Goodman played some of his uh, normal jazz repertoire, you can see that it just doesn't fit. Well, now let's just think quickly about fingering, too. I know that on the saxophone, the great master of alternate finger was Lester Young, somebody who would play the same note and vary the fingering each time he played it. I guess on the clarinet, it's not quite like that, but you've still got lots of different ways of achieving the same note. Can you show us some, as it were, legitimate fingering and some of the fake fingering that many might have used? So to start off, you have a high F sharp. This is the first one I'm going to play is the normal fingering. That's a normal fingering. Most of your fingers are used. Now, fake fingerings usually use a lot less fingers on the instrument. Mainly when you're playing very fast passages, it can be a lot easier to play. And you'll notice with this fake fingering, it is a lot flatter than the proper fingering. So when you play those two together, you can really hear the difference. But in context, a lot of people wouldn't ever be able to tell that the player is using uh, so-called fake fingering. Well, obviously, it was something that really worried Benny. But, Julian, thank you very much for those examples. No worries, thank you. <laughs>
Well, now, bearing all that in mind, let's listen to a little more of the opening movement using the kind of classical tone that Benny was aiming at. But let's keep in our minds, and I'm sure Daniel can do this too, the sound that Benny had been making in his earlier career. Now, what happens next in the concerto is a continuation of this wistful, melancholy mood, and it's still using that refugee theme that Copeland used in his Cummington story film. But then we reach a dazzling solo cadenza, and that's a bridge between two very different parts of the piece. I mentioned earlier that Copeland had harnessed two contrasting aspects of Goodman's playing, and following this sensuous ballad style, the second of these was Goodman's brilliant high-speed improvisation, darting all over the instrument, very inventive, but at the same time, very precise. Well, there are dozens of examples of that in Goodman's jazz recordings, but the one that I think shows his skill at its absolute joyous best is this one from 1937. It's called I'm a Ding Dong Daddy from Duma. Well, that was the Benny Goodman Quartet in 1937. 
That's Benny accompanied by Teddy Wilson on the piano, Lionel Hampton on the vibes and Gene Krupa drums. But you could hear there that extraordinarily deft clarinet playing. So now let's hear just a sample of how Aaron Copeland harnessed that aspect of Benny's remarkable improvising skills in the cadenza. It's through composed. In other words, it should sound improvised, but actually all the notes are written on the page. Daniel, thanks very much. That's only about the first third of the cadenza, but you get the picture. It's using Benny's characteristic mobility on the instrument as an absolutely central feature of this piece, and it's central in more ways than one because it does link the two halves of the piece together. Now, there's apparently some evidence that Benny Goodman found aspects of Copeland's original score too difficult. So, back to Julian now. Julian, I gather that there are some fiendish bits in the piece. Were they in that cadenza or were they a bit later on in the work? There's a few notes towards the end of the cadenza that Benny Goodman asked Copeland to take out. It wasn't so much that he said that these parts were too difficult. Benny Goodman said that they were above his confidence level. The majority of the changes were literally just bringing these notes down an octave or sometimes two. The biggest change, though, is the second to last section, the, the last fast section, where the whole passage is dropped down an octave. I can completely sympathise with Benny Goodman as I recently found the original manuscript and, and learnt it. It is very tricky, <laughs> but it doesn't take anything away from the, the rest of the performance. We were talking a bit earlier on, Julian and I, about Benny's character. I was lucky enough to see Benny once, and uh, he certainly could show an irascible side quite quickly, and I think he rather wanted to master this piece quickly. I mean, do you think that would have had an aspect, a man who wasn't famously given to practising in his later life? Being involved in the jazz scene is very much kind of turn up and play. He must have known all of, all of the tunes that he'd played for years and years, and he could just turn up and rattle off the most amazing solos. So for something like this, where he, he probably had to sit down and learn note by note and spend all the time on it, uh, he may have got a little bit frustrated, so he may have wanted something that he could quickly master and uh, go and wow everybody with. Well, concertos about two things, soloists and the orchestra. I mentioned earlier that Copeland had already written his ballets, Radio and Appalachian Spring, by the time he came to write this concerto. And in both of those, as in his other ballet suite, Billy the Kid, he'd very successfully introduced the idea of country dancing, line dances, square dances, hoedowns, the sort of social activity that drew small-town America together. And this concerto is no exception. Immediately after the solo cadenza, we get just such a dance, setting the scene for the clarinet's next entry.
Well, now let's add the clarinet to that. What we hear are little staccato phrases that sound just like little fragments of the figures in the cadenza, cut up and pasted over the top of the orchestra. just after this, there's a moment when Copeland uses an idea that had not only been a big feature of Goodman's jazz playing, but also of African-American music in general, the idea of call and response. But here, it's the clarinet that answers itself. It jumps from the higher to the lower register. Let's hear that now without the orchestra. Daniel. Now, after this, we come to a section where the piano and orchestra set up a return to that spiky, thematic idea we heard just after the cadenza. On the score, it's marked crude. So let's quickly ask our conductor today, Andrew Gourlay, is there a temptation, Andrew, to give this next section a kind of outrageous barroom syncopation? <laughs> the word crude here probably applies more to the piano that starts off than the orchestral tutti that comes rather surprisingly after a five-bar phrase. Over that huge orchestral tutti, we have the word vigoroso marked. Now, here we've got an orchestra which is probably about half the size of the orchestra that you'll hear in Goodman's recording of this later on. So it's especially important that we, we play with a huge amount of vigour, obviously. But uh, interpretationally, we can't necessarily do a huge amount. I mean, I suppose we could swing this, but uh, as you say, Copeland was in Brazil at the time, it probably wouldn't have been correct. But from the barroom point of view, I think um, it's quite easy to draw links with uh, Only Fools and Horses, because personally I can quite easily imagine Uncle Albert on the piano for the first five bars, <laughs> with uh, the rest of the nag's head joining in with full gusto later on. Well, this section of the piece obviously continues, and then we get to the closest thing to a jazz section in the whole work. The most of the orchestra drops out, apart from the cellos and basses, who are encouraged by Copeland to play in a slap bass style, something that uh, I was having fun with the double bass section doing earlier on this afternoon. He puts their accents on the offbeat, though, which is not exactly the way it would work in a genuine jazz group. And to my ears, this is where there's just a bit of that Latin influence that Copeland would have heard outside his window in Rio de Janeiro, every fourth bar where they suddenly catch up to a sudden onbeat. this and the section that follows, is where most soloists, including Goodman himself, take a bit of a liberty with the time, perhaps because there's a series of phrases that you just heard there, borrowed from the St. Louis blues. Now, Julian, when you play this piece, are you tempted to ease up a bit on the time here as well? 
The main point about this section is there is a great debate among clarinet players as to whether this section should be swung or played straight. I personally am right in the middle. Sometimes I play it swung and sometimes I play it straight. And also I believe that Copeland specifically asked for it to be straight as Benny Goodman plays it in the recording. But I think this is one of the places where the clarinet world, so to speak, is a bit divided on how, how it should be played. Well, from this point, everything that we've heard in the Aaron Copeland Concerto is neatly wrapped up towards the final section. And we'll hear Benny Goodman's complete performance of the piece in a moment. But just before that, it might make an interesting contrast to hear how Benny tackled the nearest equivalent to have been written just eight years earlier for his own band. It was a mini concerto called Clarinet a la King by Eddie Sauter. Benny Goodman and his orchestra in October 1941. And quite clearly there, you could hear Benny's old embouchure in use, his wide vibrato and broad jazzy tone. There are several ideas there that would creep gently into the sound world of the Copeland Concerto that Benny commissioned. In particular, the way his clarinet interacts with the band and the subtle changes of mood and pace. But now I'd like to thank Daniel Broncano Aguilera for his illustrations and the Trinity College of Music Chamber Orchestra, Andrew Gurley and Julian Bliss, and we'll hear from at least three of those factors later in the programme. Well, now, as this programme is celebrating the Benny Goodman centenary, let's hear from the great man himself once more. In 1963, Benny Goodman recorded the concerto with the Columbia Symphony Orchestra, with Aaron Copeland conducting. And later that year, Copeland wrote to one of his friends that of all the records of his work, this was the one of which he was most proud. You're listening to a special London Jazz Festival edition of Discovering Music here on BBC Radio 3 with me, Alan Shipton, celebrating the Benny Goodman centenary. Well, the second piece in the programme is another one specially written for Benny Goodman. Malcolm Arnold's Clarinet Concerto No. 2 was written a quarter of a century after the Copeland we've just heard. 
but it wasn't actually commissioned by Benny Goodman himself. Malcolm Arnold wrote concertos for people he liked and admired, and Goodman was certainly one of them. There's a story that when Goodman telephoned Arnold in 1974 to talk about it, Malcolm Arnold had recently moved to Ireland and he'd been plagued by practical jokers. The phone rang and a voice at the other end said, Malcolm, this is Benny Goodman. Arnold snapped, sod off, and put the phone down. <laughs> well, fortunately, Benny got through at the second attempt and he persuaded the irascible composer that he was indeed who he claimed to be and he thought the concerto was, and I quote, just great. Well, when he came to write the piece, Arnold was in his early 50s. He'd been one of the most productive of all English composers. Apparently, it had been hearing Louis Armstrong in Britain in the 1930s that originally inspired him to become a musician. He trained as a trumpeter, and he played with several top-flight orchestras, including the BBC Symphony. But in 1948, he won the Mendelssohn Scholarship and gave up playing professionally to compose full-time. So, interestingly, his career as a composer began exactly when Copeland was writing the first of today's two concerti. In his life, Arnold scored over 130 films, and the bulk of these had been completed before this second clarinet concerto was composed. He'd also, by this time, written seven full-length symphonies. Well, one hallmark of most of Arnold's early work is joyous exuberance and a stylish and very witty sense of humour. The extrovert Sixth Symphony included a direct tribute to the modern jazz saxophonist Charlie Parker. But the Seventh, which was written just before this concerto, shows a darker, more brooding side to Arnold's character, which was just beginning to emerge. Here was a man whose impressive workload and prodigious output went hand in hand with increasing mental fragility. And, Julian Bliss, I think in this piece you see a connection between the forcefulness of his writing and the mental fragility it conceals. This piece, unfortunately, was written right in between uh, two suicide attempts of Malcolm Arnold. You can hear in the opening of this piece, it's written in uh, serial writing, which Malcolm only used uh, in, in works of uh, extreme emotion. The opening is quite unstable, uh, anguished, and, and fairly violent. Uh, we hear falling semitones, leaps all over the place, kind of suggesting instability, which is all very much a reflection of his mental state at the time. There's another thing here in that the, the very notes played by the clarinet in the opening are very similar to a completely different mood for the same notes later on. Yeah, on, on the face of it, the finale seems to be a very carefree, upbeat piece of music. Although, uh, as said, it is the same, exactly the same notes as used in the uh, first movement, just with a bit of a jazzy twist. As the movement develops, there's a bit of uncertainty still there. But on the face of it, you wouldn't uh, actually think that the first movement notes are exactly the same theme as the very more upbeat uh, finale. Well, just to prime us for that, let's pick up those two sections of the work now and begin by hearing just the opening of the piece, the serial string writing, and after the opening long notes, the first clarinet theme. <laughs> very opening of the piece. Let's just hear that first clarinet theme again on its own. And I should say for this concerto, the solo examples are being played for us by another clarinet student from Trinity College of Music, Ruben Marcus Jacinto. Ruben. (laughs) 
So now let's hear how Malcolm Arnold intended to use those same notes at the end of the piece. The difference of setting between the first and the final movements of this Malcolm Arnold concerto means that although the notes in this ragtime setting sound familiar, it takes us a while before we work out exactly where we heard them before. Anyway, let's go back to the first movement now. Once those notes have been introduced, Arnold takes an idea we've heard addressed briefly in the Copeland Concerto, but takes it to much greater extremes. This is the whole business of jumping between registers, but whereas in Copeland this was about call and response, here it's a much more technical challenge for the instrument itself. Julian, how difficult is it to control these leaps from a very high C in the upper register to a low F sharp at the bottom? As with most things, once it has been practiced uh, enough, it, it's not actually too difficult. I think the more challenging thing here is to get the, the feeling of the uneasy part, the, the still the fairly violent beginning, the emotion, so to speak, of the, of the beginning. I think that's the hardest part here. Well, let's hear those leaps now, played by Rubin and the orchestra. This structure of the opening phrase followed by the register leaps is repeated several times and built on. And then we arrive at something with which Arnold experiments all the way through the concerto. And it's a very distinctive feature of this piece. It's the first of a sequence of musical conversations between the clarinet and another instrument. In this first case, it's the oboe. Now, normally in a concerto, the solo instrument takes the most prominent leading role. But not here. It's as if our attention is being deliberately pulled away from the clarinet. Now, if you want a reminder that Malcolm Arnold was an accomplished film composer, then the part of the first movement that follows this is a very eloquent such reminder. It's just the sort of orchestral writing he'd used for the most tense moments in Bridge on the River Kwai or Heroes of Telemark. The upper woodwinds and horns work together, the bassoons play answering phrases, the strings mainly play long notes or short echoes of the opening clarinet phrase, and the timpani sound ominously on the beat. As so often happens after a storm, Arnold brings us back to the clarinet with a moment of calm. And this is the second theme of the opening movement. It harks back to the discussion we had earlier about the Copeland in terms of Benny Goodman's talent for playing melodic ballad themes. Now that second theme and the short melodic fragment that Arnold builds into both the first and last movements of the concerto are the main elements to be found in this opening movement. 
But he has a surprise in store, and it's one that was specially intended for the unique talents of Benny Goodman. By 1974, Goodman was much more assured about straddling both the jazz and classical worlds. He'd long since settled into his new technique, and his jazz playing had lost some of the edge and fire that had been its most distinctive feature in the 30s and the early 40s. But he was still a first-rate improviser. So towards the end of this first movement, there's simply a gap in the score, and Arnold's written a message to the clarinet soloist. He says, Improvise cadenza as jazzy and way out as you please, based on the concerto's theme. Well, to get things going, Malcolm Arnold gives us a couple of introductory phrases, and I'm going to ask Reuben to play those now. Well, Julian, we're not going to preempt your improvisation on this later, but maybe you can share your thoughts about how you go about tackling this very open-ended section of the piece, just based on those first hints from the composer. To start with, there's so many different cadenzas that, that people have written for this piece, and I think the most, the most challenging part is to create a cadenza that sounds like you're making it up on the spot, but that also incorporates all of the themes from the concerto. My cadenza uh, was written by Paul Harris, so what we're hearing from you is kind of improvised on paper. Yes, I mean, the majority of clarinet players uh, go about it this way. Most people have something written down already. Well, just as the cadenza starts with a helpful phrase from the composer, he's also devised an exit strategy, and that leads us back to a restatement of the movement's main themes. We won't stay with that now. We'll move on to the second movement, which is the longest and most intense part of the concerto. And here we get something again that's common ground between Copeland and Arnold. That's the ability to say a lot with very little. In the Copeland concerto, we heard him create that square dance idea with no percussion, none of the arsenal of kitchen effects he brought into Billy the Kid. And we also heard him produce a jazz dance with just pizzicato cellos and basses, slap basses, plus clarinet. Well, Arnold had a similar gift for economy. Never better expressed, I think, than in his score for Brian Forbes' film, Whistle Down the Wind, which is just strings, clarinet, flute and glockenspiel. And I think the second movement of this concerto reminds us of those very similar forces. Having set up this very tranquil landscape, albeit with some somewhat squally weather on the horizon, we get a return to that idea we heard earlier of dialogues between the clarinet and other instruments. And we start again with the oboe. Thank you. 
or just as in the first movement, there the oboe actually takes the musical lead. Well, shortly afterwards, it's the turn of the bassoon, the flute and the horns. similar longer solos and musical conversations to come, particularly between the clarinet and the flute. I was talking earlier about the darker, more sinister overtones that were beginning to appear in Malcolm Arnold's work in the early 1970s. And this hitherto peaceful, tranquil landscape of the second movement of Clarinet Concerto No. 2 is no exception. It's when Arnold brings in a quite unusual soloist, the timpanist. After all this stormy weather, the movement ends with the return to tranquility, and it's Arnold at his most romantic. I think there are quite deliberate overtones here of Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, both in the instrumentation and in that sense of pastoral calm. It was his accessibility and his neoclassical leanings that apparently sat at much of the heart of Arnold's depression in the 1970s. He'd proved, as he does in the opening of this piece, that serialism held absolutely no terrors for him, but he was anything but a purist. He only used modernist techniques when it suited him. When the late Sir William Glock was controller of Radio 3, he tended to favour those composers who were more overtly avant-garde, and it hurt Arnold that what he felt was much of his best work was overlooked for broadcasting. You really can't imagine the BBC in the era when Pierre Boulez was chief conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra embracing as gloriously romantic a composition as this as being the latest that British music had to offer.
That's the conclusion of the second movement of Malcolm Arnold's clarinet concerto number two. Now, when it came to the third and final movement, Arnold was ever the dramatist. Now, when I was 10 years old, I remember seeing the rotund, avuncular figure of Arnold conducting the first performance of his Little Suite Number no. 2 at the Farnham Festival, played by what was to be my future school orchestra. And remarkably, at that time, Malcolm Arnold was so involved in youth music that a few years later, when my generation of musicians was attempting the same piece, who should turn up to conduct our rehearsals but Malcolm Arnold? Well, whatever troubles were going on in his life, with us, he was fantastic. He was warm, he was funny, enthusiastic, utterly charismatic. And my memory of playing under Malcolm Arnold's baton is totally bound up in that completely joyful experience. That final movement of his Little Suite Number no. 2 has an insistent drum rhythm. It makes it a total jazzy contrast at what's gone before. And in the last section of this clarinet concerto, Arnold uses the same trick. The score is marked the pre-Goodman rag. And there's certainly a jolly sense of ragtime running through it. But as well as that, there's a host of echoes from Arnold's own musical life. To me, this always conjures up the sound of music hall and the circus. Andrew, do you feel the same about this? I mean, are you tempted to make this a really broad passage, end of the peer review or the band of a travelling circus? Or do you treat it more like Scott Joplin, a bit of wistful seriousness? I think I certainly agree with your take on it, Alan, actually, this British musical feeling. I mean, this work has quite extraordinary contrast, especially if we look between the second and third movements. We shall hear the beginning of the third movement in a second. But that second movement is about as serious as we can get. In particular, one bit that we didn't hear as an extract, this Holst-like passage where the whole orchestra descends in independent blocks of sound. It's really very, very dark indeed. And to then start the third movement with a little drum kit and these horn whoops up to absurdly high notes, I think it's just a lot of fun, really. Keystone Cops, slapstick comedy, music hall, the circus, all images conjured up by those opening bars. Julian, how seriously do you think Benny Goodman took this harking back to the era before he became the King of Swing? I think he took it fairly seriously. I mean, he, I think he wanted to be seen as a fairly influential figure in the classical music world. Although, as I'm sure you would agree with me, it's a quite hard movement to play seriously. Malcolm Arnold, he was a great... Uh, Joker. I mean, a couple of stories. He, when he was at the Royal College of Music, he used to go and put dead fish in the organ pipes. Um, another one, he used to sneak into Vaughan Williams's own room when he was there and play jazz on the piano, which was seen at that time as really being a, a really bad thing. So I think even though we have the, uh, the theme from the first one, which is kind of the underlying uncertainty, I think towards the end of this movement, it really is just, you know, a good fun. Well, that final movement's going to be over in a flash. It's just a couple of minutes or so of absolutely brilliant, colourful music, and we'll hear it shortly. Well, my thanks to Ruben Marcus Jacinto for playing these examples today. Thanks, Ruben.